We are going to get to our scripture reading this morning, but before we do, I wanted to give you a little bit of background on Ecclesiastes before we dig in. And I basically wanted to just give us a little heads up. I think a lot of people get a little nervous about Ecclesiastes, and um, some people even don't like the book because it can seem a little depressing, depending on your perspective. So I wanted to just give us a little bit of insight, okay? Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, and a lot of people think that it was written by Solomon, although many disagree with that. What we do know is that the author of these sayings is referred to as Kohelet, which in Hebrew means something along the lines of teacher or preacher. So when I reference what the author is saying, I'm going to reference Kohelet, and you guys will know that I'm referring to the, the one who actually said these bits of wisdom for us this morning. What Kohelet really wants us to know when we're reading uh, this, these little nuggets is that uh, sometimes we assign meaning to the wrong things in life. And so throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a lot of language that says everything is meaningless, <laughs> everything is futile, <laughs> nothing's worth it. And the, the point really there is, is not to make us all depressed. It's not to be a gray cloud, even though it kind of seems that way. It's just because we sometimes focus on the wrong things. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a section of Ecclesiastes and um, we're going to maybe dig in to some of the distractions in life that are pulling us away from things that glorify God. So I'm going to be reading Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 16. I will be reading from NASB, but as always here at Renew, we invite you to pull out your Bible or your phone and choose whatever translation or language uh, most resonates with you. I'll go ahead and pray before I read that passage. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, great creator, sovereign Lord, Jesus, we come before you today and we lay our own stresses, our own distractions. We lay it at your feet, Lord, and we just say, teach us. Be present with us. Let the words this morning that we read ignite something in us. Speak directly to our minds, but also to our hearts, Lord. And help us this morning to be postured and ready to receive what it is that you have for us, the gift that you have for us in wisdom this morning. We love you and praise you. Amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 16. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a person and his neighbor. This too is futility and striving after the wind. The fool holds his hand and consumes his flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Then I looked again at futility under the sun. There was a man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And he never asked, for whom do I labor and deprive myself of pleasure? This too is futility, and it is an unhappy task. 
Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise youth is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all those living under the sun move to the side of the second youth who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them. Even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is futility and striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I want to start this morning by telling you guys the tale of two grandfathers. Full disclosure, they're my grandfathers, okay? And, uh, and I'll paint the picture for you. These two men were both born to relatively poor families in rural America, and these two men were both white. They grew up in the 30s, and then their paths started to take different courses. The one grandfather decided that he was going to uh, use his cleverness and get ahead, and he took a job with the up-and-coming IBM company. The other grandfather enlisted in the Army. He wound up fighting in World War II. He remembers his unit being attacked in Okinawa, and next thing he remembers, he is waking up on a hospital ship bound back for the States with shrapnel lodged by his heart. These two men worked hard in their early adulthood. They got married, they had kids. And then they shared two granddaughters. And you'd think that they might find some unity in some of their shared story and their shared grandchildren. And for a little while that was the case, but then a rivalry very quickly developed. The businessman grandfather was able to buy very nice gifts for his granddaughters. He even had a vacation home in North Carolina that the grandkids could go and visit him at in the summers. The veteran grandfather found himself unable to keep up with that kind of lifestyle and was very jealous. And the rivalry led to a place where no longer did these two men join together in community ever. So Christmas morning, one grandfather would visit the grandkids, Christmas dinner, the other. Easter, the grandkids would go to one grandfather's house, Thanksgiving, the other. And the two men did not socialize. Later in life, they both lost their wives. They both wound up living alone for some years by themselves. And when the businessman grandfather died in his 80s, he had no real community of which to speak. And with the very small family he had, there was no funeral, just a little family dinner. Veteran grandfather, when he passed at 92 years old, his children discovered that unbeknownst to him, he had been receiving disability benefits from the army and had money to the tune of a million dollars that he never knew about. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to let that sink in for a second as we see how these two men ended their lives after decades 
a rivalry with one another. One alone, one striving for something that he had all along, didn't even realize it. So, I have a question for you all, and it's not rhetorical. I want you to just go ahead and throw it out. Why? Why did these two men need to spend decades of their life in competition with one another? I, I don't know, but I'm open. You guys got some ideas? <laughs> a football game? Oh, psychological football. Needed to be a winner. Someone's got to have something. Come on, give me more. Psychological football. They spend decades not talking to each other. I'm waiting for Paul. Paul always has something. Come on, Paul. <laughs> yeah, maybe a lot of you have stories like this among family members. Pride. Pride. I have one for you. What about fear? Do you think fear drives competition? Rivalry? Maybe the idea that we're not enough? Maybe we're trying really hard to get approval or affection or we think we'll feel better once we reach some accomplishment. We resent our neighbor for having already reached it, maybe? Pride, fear, psychological football. Whatever the reason, competition is a common motivator for people, and we often use comparison with our peers to measure our own success, health, value, worth. It's like we don't even know who we are unless we can kind of see where we are in position to others. I don't know how many of you follow track and field. I've got some track runners among my kiddos. And so we were watching on TV when the Olympic trials took place in Ben, Oregon a couple years ago. And I was surprised to see how many of the athletes were setting personal records. A lot of them were setting personal records. I shouldn't have been surprised though, because I think we all know that this happens. We have one pace that is our natural pace. And then when we have people running with us, maybe that pace gets a little faster. And then when we're competing against people that are really good, suddenly we run faster than we ever have in our lives. There is something about having that person right next to us that pushes us to have to be even faster and faster. Do I have any, is there, are there any runners in here? Does that resonate with anyone? I'm looking around to see if we have any track athletes in the, in the mix. I mean, there's something intrinsic in us, I think, as humans, where competition drives us and motivates us. And Kohelet actually says in verse 4 that all labor and every skill is a result of rivalry between a person and their neighbor. Kohelet postures that all labor and every skill is a result of ri rivalry. The NIV translates that to say all toil and achievement springs from one person's envy of another. And I think it's true if you look around, we live in a society that is addicted to achievement. We are always reaching for the next thing. And we might not realize that our endless goals and desired accomplishments are pitting us against our neighbor, but they inevitably are. All too often we put on our blinders and we say we need to keep our eye on the prize, we need to reach for the next best thing. 
And we put our own personal ambitions as our primary objectives. And Kohelet warns us about the meaninglessness of this sort of striving, especially if we are neglecting the holy call of loving our neighbors. Because scripture is quite clear that we are to be loving our neighbors, and if our goal is to constantly be outdoing them, we have neglected a holy call. So verse 8 actually sets us up for one of the biggest pitfalls of living a life that's dedicated to accomplishment. It says, There was a man without a dependent, having neither son nor brother, yet there was no end to his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, For whom do I labor and deprive myself of pleasure? We will never be satisfied living a life that is isolated from others. It doesn't matter how many riches we have, we will not be satisfied if we are living in isolation from one another. And in fact, we focus on these achievements and these accomplishments, maybe because we're scared, maybe because we're proud. We focus on these achievements and these accomplishments thinking that's what's gonna bring us safety, that's what's gonna bring us love and affection, that's what's gonna bring us comfort. But Kohelet goes on in verses 9 through 12, and this is what Denise read for us this morning, that highlights the fact that we've gotten it backwards. Our achievements, our accomplishments, aren't going to be the things that bring us comfort and safety at all. We will find that comfort and safety when we are in relationship with one another. Verse 10 saying, two are better than one. If either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. We've got this upside down. We want to keep striving for the things that are going to make our life easier. And in doing so, we have neglected the actual holy call of being in relationship. And that's the thing that enhances and enriches our lives. That seed of competition grows and grows in us. And Kohelet goes on to explain what can happen uh, when we stubbornly refuse to listen to the words, thoughts, and advice of others. Verse 13 saying, A poor but wise youth is better than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. I think we've all seen this. Maybe we've done it ourselves, if we're being honest. But you get to a point in some area of your life where you've worked hard and you think you have it figured out. And suddenly you think everyone should be listening to your advice because you have this dialed in. But woe to us, how foolish are we, even if we reach some place of prestige and power like this king, if we are unwilling to receive instruction from others. I recently had an experience with this, and those of you who attend here regularly know that I try really hard not to talk about my kids too much, so I'm going to be vague. But I was at Seattle Children's with one of my kiddos, and the diagnosis that the specialist handed me for that child did not make sense to my brain. It didn't add up. The things I was being told about my child did not match what I experience in life with her day to day. 
And I tried really hard to have a conversation with this physician. I tried really hard to say, well, I know you've got the letters after your name, right? I know you've got the degree. <laughs> I know you see lots of kids, but I know my daughter. Maybe together, maybe we unify your knowledge and my personal experience and together we can come up with the best plan for her. But he was wholly unwilling to listen to anything I had to say. I felt very small and I walked away feeling very lonely and sad. And I get it. I do not have those letters after my name. I do not have years and years of medical school under my belt. He does not live with my child day in and day out, right? I think we see this happening in life a lot. And I do think if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we probably do it to some extent also, right? But it leaves us isolated from one another. And we have to ask ourselves, have we set for ourselves goals and achievements and accomplishments that are motivated by this societal pressure to get ahead at all cost? And who, besides ourselves, might we be hurting in this ignorance? We talk a, I talk a lot about individual impact, and I think we do, especially in the American Christian Church. We talk a lot about me and what this passage means for me, and what my relationship with God is like. We, we talk a lot about individuality. But this morning, it's important for us to also say, how does this apply corporately? How does this apply as a group? Because the me versus him mindset very quickly feeds us versus them. Very quickly. And our heart posture can be turned toward the wrong thing, the things that are meaningless, while neglecting the idea that we're just corporately supposed to care for our neighbors. So this brings me back to Kohelet's wisdom. And I didn't get these verses up on the slides, so I'm just going to have you listen as I read them. But I did something a little backwards today, and I read in this chapter starting at verse 4 and going through the end of the chapter because I wanted us to kind of take a walk through the woods and look at all the individual trees but let's pan out and look at the forest, okay? Because Kohelet actually starts this section, verses 1 through 3, with some pretty powerful words. It says this, I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And power was on the side of their oppressors, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still living. But better off than them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. That is some powerful language. That is some bold, powerful language. To say better is the one who was never born, because that's how evil this oppression is. 
Better is the one who never had to see it. Because that's how evil this oppression is. And the reason I read all those other verses first is because it makes a lot of sense when you start to put the pieces together and say, why does oppression even happen? Why are we oppressing one another? It ties directly to that concept of competition, rivalry, jealousy. We will do whatever it takes to get ahead, even if that means oppressing our neighbor. And whether that's an individual heart posture or something that has become corporate, it has to be acknowledged. It is meaningless, but beyond that, it is evil. It is evil. And look, I, I get it. I don't think any of us in this room feels as though we're an evil person doing evil things. <laughs> it is pretty, that's pretty bold language, right? And I don't know that anyone in this room feels as though that they are actively oppressing their neighbor. I'm sure, I'm sure. But when was the last time you truly took a moment to think to yourself, are my goals in life, is my addiction to achievement, is my need to get ahead, even inadvertently contributing to the oppression of entire groups of people? Maybe it's a leap, guys, but this takes me back to my grandfathers, okay? Because here's the deal with my two grandfathers. They had something incredibly big in common that these two men who lived their life in rivalry with one another, always trying to get past each other, never acknowledged. Uh-oh, everybody ready for it? Hold on to your seats. White privilege. Ah! She said a buzzword. Okay, but let's just be honest, okay? My businessman grandfather was accepting positions and climbing a corporate ladder that was only available to him as a white man. And my veteran grandfather received GI benefits that many of his black and brown fellow soldiers did not receive. Okay? These two men were already miles ahead in the race. And they were so busy looking over and competing with one another, feeling as though they needed to get further and further and further, they completely neglected to see that there were entire groups of people that weren't even invited to run that race. And they didn't know it. Blinders. So, I'm hoping that because we are talking about people that are a little distant from us, a little less personal, maybe we won't feel personally attacked when I challenge us this morning to say, how are there areas in your life perhaps where your desire to achieve more and more and more has kind of put blinders on, has made it a challenge for you to look around and say, what's going on with my brothers and sisters? Does someone need to be lifted up? Am I willing to humble myself and let them lift me up from time to time? Am I in relationship? Am I unified? It's important that we shift our gaze and acknowledge that the antidote to all the oppression we're seeing is if we are first and foremost striving to be unified, to love our neighbor above ourselves. Always, above our accomplishments, above our goals, above our achievements. And it's a personal and corporate shift from addiction to those achievements, from trying to be the next biggest church. Right? Right? I mean, is our goal as a body of believers to be like, what were our numbers this week? 
When are we going to switch to two services? Bigger, better, bigger, better. Is that the goal? It's, it's not what Jesus wants our goal to be, right? But how are we loving our neighbors? How are we loving our community? How are we reaching out to the other members of this body? And hopefully that's something that we're willing to do, even though society is constantly telling us that that shouldn't be our goal. Because the Spirit says it should. And the Bible says it should. And it's quite countercultural. But we're here together today to remind ourselves of that, yes? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great, powerful spirit, protector, lover, creator, we are thankful, Lord, that you give us this space, that you challenge us. Lord, we know you want us to grow, but sometimes we try to grow in the wrong ways. And God, this morning, we pray that you will stretch us in the direction that is to relationship, to putting our neighbor above ourself, to setting down our pride or our fear or whatever is motivating us to be in constant competition with one another and instead care for one another, love one another, protect one another. Lord, stir in us, move in us. We know, Lord, that with your help and with your presence, we can reach out to those around us and be a cord of three strands, Lord. We are better together, and you've made that clear. Thank you for the people in this room. Thank you for those who are seeking and trying and asking and wondering. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. Amen.